DC39 looks after ECMAScript. Okay. Kevin, just for the f- for future reference, if we don't have a speaker, we're going to have episodes mm. called Just Ask Kenneth. <laughs> oh boy <laughs> you know because and then we'll all be well educated after that yeah i might actually learn about what this programming thing is mm. one day one day i might actually get it right they mm. just gave you the outtake or the intro on a platter session attention attention this is episode 24 of za dev chat where we have no idea what we're talking about and we just make it up as we go along but it's very entertaining tonight we have kenneth how's it kenneth good evening everyone saying well thanks cool cool and we have Ke- uh, kevin kevin that's right you've been on this before haven't you kevin yeah a few times hey guys how's it going awesome awesome cool all right do you guys know what your myers-briggs personality types are because I'm an ENTJ, you know, like it's otherwise known as the commander. <laughs> it's very weird. Do you know what that's why, Myers That's Brig- why we left you in charge. That's right. Yeah. When when I show up, right? When I show up. Um, do you know what you? Yeah. <laughs> Eventually, what? Consistency what are you saying? And, you know, consistency and reliability is that in there? <laughs> no, no, absolutely unreliable. You know. <laughs> cool. Um, yeah, so tonight we are going to try and talk about Rust. It's this new programming language that's coming out of Mozilla. Kevin knows the most about it, so we're going to be sort of trying to figure it out from what he knows, and we'll see how it goes. So, Kevin, do you want to just kick us off, give us an idea of where Rust comes from, and uh, we can take it from there? Cool, yeah. So Rust fits into the domain of programming languages as a systems programming language. It's... Low level in the sense that it's comparable to C. It, it's got a very efficient C binding system, uh, but it has some really interesting, unique kind of facets about it. So it has compile time semantics in that, that guarantee memory safety and uh, along those lines. So it's a very interesting language, and it's there are a few languages that seem to be kind of in this space or competing in a similar space at the moment, such as Go. And Rust, there's also D that's been looming around, and uh, C++ now has a 2014 standard. Right, uh, who, who, is it Mozilla that's created Rust? Is that where, you know, Mozilla wanted to create a new systems language, as far as I understand? Uh, so it started off as a personal project by a Mozilla employee. I don't remember his name now. But Mozilla began kind of sponsoring and backing the project in 2009. Um, so it's been around for a while. But but it grew out of a personal project of one of their employees. And nowadays it's, it does get used quite heavily in some of Mozilla's projects. I know some parts of Firefox are now written in Rust, uh, the, the rendering engine. Again, and, and I mean, let's take, let's just start very slowly. What does Hello World look like in Rust? Okay, well, it's easy to look at this if you've come from a C background, but let's just assume, no, let's assume that it's a Rubyist or such as myself who has just seen Puts Hello World before. Um, 
you define a main function and that function then um, call you to do a, to print a hello world you would call print line which in rust is actually a macro we can get into a bit of that later and you'd pass it a hello world string okay so it's basically it's got an entry point main and um it's got curly brackets like C, so all blocks yep. begin curly brackets. Does it have those, uh, what are they, nasty semicolons? So statements are all semicolon nasty. So, so that's <laughs> a, another, another interesting thing. So you have statements and expressions, and they aren't necessarily the same thing. So with Rust, statements will end with a semicolon. But if you want to do an implicit return, if you... You don't have to explicitly call return in a function, but then if you leave off the last semicolon of the in a function, that's uh, that becomes a, an expression rather than a statement, and that value can be returned. Okay, cool. So it's got some interesting semantics around semicolons and how those are used, and it, it's a bit of a confusing thing at first. But after literally just after looking at it for ten minutes, it actually looks quite elegant, especially if you're coming from a language that has implicit returns such as Ruby. Right, right. Okay, so uh, I guess the question I'm asking with semicolons and the reason I call them nasty is they get confusing because in some languages they're used as a statement separator or expression separator, and in some languages they're used as a line terminator, you know, or you know, block terminator, if you want. Is there, do you have a high-level view of how they're used in Rust? Yeah, so it's a statement separator. Okay, so you can have like a whole bunch of things on the same line, same as C, you can have yeah. one line, one line Rust programs. Okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and if you want to use the semantics of returns, you can use a return, an explicit return, and then end that with a semicolon. Right, yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's got some kind of progressive idea. You can like adopt features of the language more like progressively. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. So, yeah, one of the things, yeah. as you mentioned, the word progressive, one of the things that's very interesting with Rust. So as a language, Rust is statically typed, um, but it has type inference. So if you assigning a constant or a literal or even uh, creating a variable binding to something of a known type, you don't have to always give it the a, a type in line. The compiler is clever enough to go and look at the function you're calling or the literal that you're putting in there and just uh, infer what the variable binding or what the type is of the variable binding you're creating is. There are a few exceptions where you, you would need to give hints to it and where you can actually get some varying behavior uh, based on the hints that you provide, uh, where Rust has different op options of what it may may do depending on what type hints you give it. Mm -hmm. I guess uh, just as a pure... Outside, I've never seen Rust like kind of in action at all, and coming at it for the first time, it it seems very daunting. I mean, you you're already carrying on almost like a Haskeller here, you know, you know, and type inference and like type hints and all sorts of complex things. And it is Rust quite complicated to learn? So, I find Rust has got a fairly steep learning curve, uh, especially. I spent a little while in the last few months, last year, learning Go. And Go's got a far gentler learning curve to Rust. Now, it's not a matter of maturity or anything It's like or anything on those lines. It's just that Rust, as a language, has taken a different approach. And they're trying to give tools that are... Uh, Yehuda Katz uses the term, they're sharper tools, uh, where you've got things like generics. 
you've got access to things in Rust that you don't have in, in a language like Go. Uh, and all of these things with the type system that can take some time to understand and master adds up to that learning curve. So although there's a sharper learning curve, the thing is I also believe that there is a good trade-off to that um, because you do get into a language here that doesn't require a garbage collector in order to be memory safe. So it's kind of a double-edged sword there. Okay, so, I and mean, that's a very interesting uh, statement that they're making where they are saying they've got guaranteed, uh, what is it, how do they put it, guaranteed memory safety? Yeah, uh, they, they, it's quite a bold claim, actually, to say guaranteed memory safety, uh, especially in a language where you're leaving it up to the developer to make the choices of where memory gets allocated and, and, and the like. But just by having a few semantics built into the language and into the compiler, it's really made it possible to avoid the mistakes that lead to memory leaks or naughty references. Um, I mean, it, it's very difficult to make a Rust program sig fault unless you're working inside the unsafe, uh, an, an unsafe block, in which case you're then allowed to do memory unsafe operations. But in general, the just the simple semantics that it, that are built into the language prevent you from making those kinds of mistakes. So, so how does it do? How does it do that at the code level? Do you have to say I'm declaring variable here, and I'm freeing it over here, and then the what the compiler checks all of that for you? Or um, if you've worked with the smart pointers in C I think C eleven and fourteen. Uh, the idea is that you shouldn't be calling new and new and delete anywhere in your code. You should rather be using make unique or make shared um, to get these smart pointers that are then able to, when they come out of scope, they get cleaned up. Now, Rust uses the same uh, principle as C++, uh, RAI, uh, resource, uh, resource acquisition is initialization. One of Fiona Strustrup's um, or the evidence why you shouldn't be in marketing. But <laughs> <laughs> what it effect effectively means is that when a variable goes out of scope, any destructors get called. And that includes when exceptions are raised uh, so that the stack is unwound, mm. that any destructors of things that are allocated on there get, get removed at the same time. Now, what Rust has done is effectively, um, unless you're working inside blocks of code that are marked as unsafe, you're only going to be working with these smart pointers that have this uh, logic of as soon as you move out of scope, they will clean up after themselves. Okay, so now, now along with uh, that, yeah, can, I, can I ask something there? When you, when you say out of scope, I mean, that's you, you're not talking about the call stack, right? Uh, that you can think of it in terms of the stack, uh, the call stack. It's not not exactly the call stack because it's you get scopes and side functions, but it is stack based. Yeah. So yeah. as soon as you, when you when you create a variable, it goes onto the stack, and when you move outside of that scope, so that could be inside a an, an if or a for. Uh, as soon as you go outside of that scope, yeah, um, so, anything on that stack can get popped off. Cool. So I'm I'm happy with that because that's the same in all other languages, right? But now I want to allocate some memory on the heap, and um, yeah. I'm going to allocate this memory. I'm going to return a pointer to it. And then, um, you know, my, my stack frame is going to, you know, going to, going to end. So it's in essence, things are going to go out of scope. How does Rust then track the stuff on the heap? Because it's, I've got multiple threads and I've passed that piece of memory across to the second thread. 
And and this is the classic problem in C, and that's why like you've got garbage collectors in Java and Go, and those garbage collectors take some time to patrol all the pointers in the system, and keep track of things and go, hey, hang on, this pointer nobody's referencing it anymore. You know, it can be like marked for deletion later on or something like that. So without having a garbage collector that's patrolling things, you have to. Well, I don't understand what it is that you do. <laughs> I guess is my question. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so this is where you get language-based semantics that try and prevent you from making these mistakes uh, of when you were going out of scope, leaving stuff on the heap or leaving pointers to um, things that have been deallocated, null pointers and things like that. So what Rust does is, let's say you've got an integer 5 uh, and you want to put that on the heap. It could be anything, but I'm going to just go with the primitive type like an integer. What you do is you create a box. Now, Rust has generics, so boxes are a generic type that can take any type. Um, and the box you can think of as a unique pointer in C++, in that it's, it's a smart pointer, and as soon as you go out of scope, the thing that that box is pointing to will also be removed from the heap. Uh, it, so the, the pointer itself is managed in that when when that goes out of scope it will it'll get cleared okay i see in the documentation there's a lot of stuff around what they're referring to as ownership borrowing and lifetimes yeah. it's all weird stuff for me of course see some say like yeah so, yeah. so, so let, let, let's start with this box type uh, and and just go through how how scope right out there um if you if you create a, a box inside a uh, inside a function, um, you you can work with it inside that function. Um, but as soon as that function clears, unless you're returning the value, it's going to call the destructor on that box, which will then clear the memory of the heap at, or free it of the heap, and then you won't have any more references to that anymore. If you ref return that out of that, this is where ownership comes in. Okay. So you can think of uh, um, any object in Rust is owned by something that has a scope that will expire at some point. So you could think of it as a function, an if block, a for loop, uh, mat, any of the uh, closure. All of these things uh, can be owners, and when they when you leave their scope, uh, destructors of anything that's initialized or owned by that, rather not necessarily initialized, but owned by that, will be called. So. You're then able to, if I pass this box in, uh, with it, that contains an integer to another function without using um, the reference operator, which I'll get to, if you just pass it directly as you would do in, say, a Ruby, um, you pass, you're actually passing the ownership of this variable to that function. And then when that function ends, if it doesn't return the object to you, that uh, that object is then uh, dest destructed, and you can you cannot then use that from its parent scope. The, the compiler will actually fail if you try to do. This. Right, right. I see. There's a very weird thing here called move semantics. So, so you yeah, you declare v equals the vector, and then you like somewhere later on you say let v two equals v. But what's weird about that in Rust is that you can then no longer use the original v. Yes. Because the, cause it's kind of yeah, like so moved to V2. No, it, it's removed V at that point. It, it's it's taken V and moved it into V2, and V is no longer valid at that point. 
the the way that you think about this is okay in in rust your types of your variables that are declared is immutable by default you can have as many immutable references to um to a variable as you like okay that's very interesting so, so uh, variables are immutable by default assign once basically yeah yeah assign and if you if you have a vector or something and you uh try and mutate it it's going to give you a you need to have a mutable reference in order to, to mutate a vector, for example. So in order to declare a mutable reference, you would then say let mute and then give it a reference ampersand uh, x equals vec to, to get the mutable reference to it. This then also plays into ownership semantics when you're moving between functions. So if I want to pass this vector to a function, but I want to be able to still use this vector from the parent function later, so I don't want to give it ownership. I just want to let it borrow it. Okay. That's where the, that's where that's the term terminology there. I then pass it using an ampersand. Um, so I'm passing the reference to my, the vector uh, to this function, and when that function returns, I still have ownership of it. So I can still continue to use it. Now you can have one or more immutable references, or exactly one mutable reference to. Uh, to an object you can't have two mutable references to the same piece of memory in rust and that's how you get synchronization when you get to multi-threaded programming is that the compiler will literally prevent you from letting two threads have mutable references to the same same thing wow okay time for a beer break (laughs) it's a it took a while to get my head around this stuff and i'm still learning a lot of this and playing with it and trying to understand it um, okay, well, maybe, maybe, I, I've yeah. spent I've spent little time I've spent very little time in my programming career working with languages that are not garbage collected. I mean, I've worked primarily with C sharp, Ruby, uh, done some Java. All of these are garbage collected, and the garbage collector makes things really easy in, to, for a certain class of thing. But at some point, you want to work with code that has deterministic. Uh, cleanup times or have that where you don't want to be stopping the world in order to clean up memory uh, if that may be in games programming where you can't afford to let something last more, let something last more than 16 milliseconds if you want to maintain 60 frames per second for example mm. uh, and there, there are some other really useful places where this kind of semantic of not being garbage collected is very useful for uh, another example is embedding inside a garbage collected language. So if you want to call into native code from Ruby, which is garbage collected, you don't really want to then fire up another garbage collector along with the code that you're running uh, to to manage that memory. By doing that, you've then got two things that could stop the world inside your code. So Rust plays really nicely in the same, same kind of place that C plays uh in in the ruby space at least where you can build native extensions to ruby and c uh, and you've got full control over the uh, over the machine then at, at a low level rust kind of plays in that same space of not being garbage collected and not having the stop of the world garbage collection so you have predictable performance in in those scenarios okay all right well maybe let's let's pause that for a second and just come at rust from sort of the other side of things um does it does rust have classes is it object orientated 
No, so Rust has struct, uh, does not have classes, but it's similar to Go in that you can implement functions on struct, so you can still bind um, functions and data together in that way, but they're not classes and they're not inherited in that sense. Uh, what, what it does have instead of interfaces or, or mixing that perhaps closer to modules in Ruby are traits. And you can derive traits and implement traits on, um, on structs. And in doing so, you get a bit of a polymorphic like behavior. If you, uh, implement the display traits on a struct, you're then able to use it as, uh, as part of a string uh, using print line, for example. Okay, so so it's got this kind of idea of uh, generics, which look kind of like interfaces, where the, there's an optional type parameter. Uh, so generics in Rust, that, I think that's one of the key things that are that I find attractive about Rust. So, in you have a generic vector, you don't have a vector of you don't have to create a new vector for every type that you're implementing. Um, just for clarity, a vector is a bit like a variable length array in other languages. Um, uh, with, with generics, you then only implement that vector once and then don't have to go and rewrite a vector for every different type. But that doesn't really play into interfaces in the same way that you would see in Java or C Sharp. Okay, so are generics, they're kind of more like the the standard template library and C C++ where they are generating code at run uh, compile time for the specific type. Uh, so if you say I've got a vector of ints, then I'll get a whole bunch of code manifest to deal with int-based vectors. It doesn't work the same as same as C at, um, as from my understanding of it. I've got very little little experience with C++ at this point, um, but. It goes and generates um, code for the different types that you're trying to use inside your code base. So if you've got a vector of ints that you're using, it will create code that's optimized for for integers. Uh, but I think just to get back to the interface discussion, that comes back to traits. That it's, traits are far closer to interfaces, although, again, they're not the exact same thing. But let's talk let's talk about that display trait so i can define a function that will format a string it returns a string format uh, for my for a given type for a struct uh, if i then pass that in i can pass it in anywhere that requires something that implements that display trait okay they seem very so similar it's, it's to a bit like go yeah to go interfaces way. yeah yeah um, with a little bit of a difference in that you can, you can create, uh, or you can create a default implementation of that trait and then using an annotation that the compiler will read, uh, it's a, it's a specially formatted comment. You can then just tell a, a struct to derive the standard implementation of this trait. So you can derive the debug trait and that will um, use Rust's default implementation of that trait on on a struct, rather than you then going to have to implement it yourself. Okay, but you can get uh, some kind of extensibility there against uh, sort of you know overloading the the behavior on structs, right? By by saying I can implement this trait as well if I want to change the behavior. Yeah. So the rule around that is that you can implement a trait on any type. Um, 
So if you're creating a trait, uh, any type, including built-in types, so you can write something, you can, you can write code that would read as like two dot days dot ago, very similar to active support. And you can, that can be valid rest, uh, because you can take that trait that you've created and apply it to any, uh, any type. Um, but built-in types, uh, built-in traits or traits that other people have written, you should only apply to code that you've written. That's a general rule around it. Okay. Wow. Very, very interesting stuff. Kenneth, what do you think so far, man? I think from what I've heard generally, like in conversations with Kevin as well, off the record, off the record and uh, just other podcasts and stuff, the, the memory model is definitely what people love the most. And you can always hear people get like stuck explaining the borrowing and the lending, the mechanics of the <clears throat> mutable state and immutability. But I mean, this definitely sounds very, very uh, interesting. I'm liking what you guys are unpacking so far. I just had a question and I'll escape me the moment you put me on the, mm, on the spot. Gotta, you got to be ready, man. You got to be ready. Browsing, yeah. <laughs> I'm browsing through the documents through the different pages as you guys were chatting. Um, yeah, it completely escaped me now. <laughs> well, so far, just reading through the, the docs at rustlang.org, uh, it seems like Rust has everything you would want, right? It's it's got uh, pattern matching, so it's got like that's what yeah. I wanted to ask. Yeah, so it's, it's exactly what I wanted. It's to got ask. like a match. Matching. So it look, looks like a very advanced sort of case switch statement. Yeah. Um, does it support regexes in the match? Ooh, I'm not actually sure. I can imagine it would, but I I haven't got down to that level yet. Yeah, it looks like it's doing value based uh, matching. Yeah, so you can match based on. Well, Values is probably the best way of describing it. So before we get into match, I want to talk about error handling because that kind of leads into matching. Okay, cool. So Rust has a very interesting um, model or way of modeling error handling. Uh, you can't catch errors. It's got a panic, but you can't catch out of that. The The way that Rust works is that if you've got an, op uh, an operation that could fail, you're expected to return a result type from that. So a result is an enum, but it's a bit different from traditional enums is that uh, the values of an enum can are, are generically typed. So you can have an OK of type T, and that more or less maps to a tuple in some languages. Um, that, that OK value can then contain another value. And that OK value can then also have methods that you can write that you can apply to it so the result type and the option type um in, in rust both they're both generic enum types and they both have very similar semantics the option type is how you would describe something that is nullable so that that's can, that's can, I, just, thing, yeah. can I just jump in here and say that, that option yeah. type looks exactly like the maybe monad in Haskell. Yes. So it does. It yes. does. So, so let's just get through. We're not allowed to use words like monads here. So <laughs> okay, uh, the let's just describe the behavior here. So the idea of the option type is to represent something that could have an absence of value. So an important concept in Rust is that you can't have null reference exceptions because there's just no such thing as null. Simple way of getting rid of that problem. 
What? There's no and such thing as null. There's no such thing as null. What you have is no, no, a no. You can't. You can't do that. You can't <laughs> do that. Like there's a there's a thing called null. It uh, has so been spotted by the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland. <laughs> they, they saw null. <laughs> I also saw it in my Postgres database. So. But we'll okay, come. We'll come so, back to that. We'll come back okay, to that. So, so what you're describing there is an absence of value. It's something that is not there. Well, the Large Hadron Collider did not see anything because it wasn't there. Exactly. The, your your Postgres column actually just has nothing there. Yeah, that's that. My customers didn't understand that. Yeah. What Rust has in place of null is none, but it's not a type. It's not a. It's not in the same kind of context. It wouldn't be used in the same way as null or null in other languages. And we're not allowed to call it a monad, right? No, because monads are functional things that... As soon as you understand a monad, there's a curse. You do not know how to explain it. So that we're not allowed to talk about these things. Okay. Aye, aye. <laughs> so you have this option type that can either be a value, um, a sum or none. And some is just a wrapper, it's a generic type that can hold a value. Alternatively, it could be none. And one of those two types, when you have a function that returns an option of type int, it will either return a sum of type int or a none. And this is where we then get into pattern matching. So depending on the result value there, you can then do a match on the result uh, for either sum of t and then get the value out of that or none and then handle that case. If you are too lazy to write match like I am because I like writing fewer characters, the Rust standard library of option and result, which we'll get to, um, implements a set of standard uh, functions on those uh, on, the, on the option and result types. So the, the one that will it's the easiest to work with, but it's also the one that you shouldn't be working with too often is unwrap. If I just want to get to the value inside this um, option, I can call dot unwrap and I'll, if it's an option of int, I'll get an integer back from that. Problem is that if it's none, it'll panic and my program will exit or the thread will exit. That's, that's another thing. Um, the, the thread is the scope of failure for a panic. So if I'm on my main thread and I call unwrap on something that is none, uh, or an error, I get a panic. There are a few other um, very useful functions built in there. So if you have, if you want to provide a default value for, if I unwrap, but I want to pass a default if I have a uh, none, which is pretty much like using an or in Ruby if you've got a null, then you you can say unwrap or and then pass a parameter and that will be used as the default. Um, there's all there are also Variants of this that will take closures, so you can compute a de uh, default or compute an error depending on the, the case that you're in. Um, use and those are built into the standard library. But internally, these are using pattern matching uh, on this enum type in order to handle the uh, the error handling case for that, or the match case. Um, so I find that's a really elegant way of handling this this error handling, um, where you've got. It's different from Go's approach where you have multiple return values. You're still only getting one value back from a function, but you have to then do some operation on this value in order to get to the actual result and explicitly handle cases around that. So it puts it right in front of you that, you know, we're working with software, stuff can go wrong, 
and you expect it to handle it. And it gives you a really good arsenal of tools to be able to handle that. So it's, just, it's a very weird mixture of kind of almost high-level functional concepts and then at the same time very low-level like C-type world that it's actually running in. Yeah, I find it's a fascinating mix here in Rust. It's also got uh, the concept of macros, which is something that you see in Lisp. Um, so there's a very strong influence on that side. If you look at the code on the rustlang.org homepage, it's got that print line exclamation mark, that bang. Yes. Um, indicates that that is actually a macro. And when that's compiled, that will actually be expanded into, um, uh, into the code inside that macro. You use the same thing for vector initialization that you could use square brackets to create an array in Rust, but if you want to specifically create a, re uh, a vector, you'd say vec bang and then use square brackets and then pass your elements. And that then expands into creating a new vector and then pushing the values into it at the end of, of it and then returning the vector. Mm. You can, and you can do some very interesting stuff there with that that becomes metaprogramming like, um, where you can actually pass variable names and identities through and you can pass types through to these macros and they expand into uh, into Rust code at compile time. So now is Rust the reason that Firefox is so bad? Uh, I don't think so. No, <laughs> Firefox just, just is primarily still C++. But I believe that there oh, okay. are some parts of this where they are implementing parts of the rendering engine in Rust for, for the kind of reasons that you don't want a garbage collection uh, to occur while it's busy doing a CSS animation. Yeah, I think that project's called Servo as a parallel, highly parallel rendering engine. And I think Samsung's actually taking the lead um, on that. But it's, I mean, it's a big community effort. And it's actually one of the key things that's been driving up Rust design. And this is how I first heard about Rust uh, ages ago. Well, I say ages ago. But this looks very, very interesting. It could change the, the world a bit for us web developers. I just was like, I heard on a on the Bike Shed podcast, I was chatting to the guys about an ORM for Rust called Diesel. And I've been just checking through the, the readme. And I've seen an example here. They've got a, a macro called um, infer schema. Basically, this thing can look at your database um, at compile time. It needs to be able to connect to a database and then it can <coughs> generate all the different types and stuff for your system to then have like strict across your database, which makes your database interactions a hell of a lot more safer. And and I know they've had some interesting quirks with those nulls that's been spotted in the wild, the ways that <coughs> they've handled that. But it, it just looks like interesting thing using these macros at compile time to generate code then matches your database. Obviously, the nitpicky is if your schema changes, your application could break in some interesting ways. Um, but ideally, you should then like recompile against the new schema and then immediately you'll pick up like code changes that you'll need to make to be compatible with your uh, schema changes, which sounds like an interesting idea. And then based on the strict typing, they all kinds of fantastic semantics for building up uh, proper SQL statements, but using this nice DSL type thing to work with. And so now that makes a lot more sense now that you've unpacked the macros a bit. So it's definitely easy to write your own. Well, it seems like that from the little bit I can see in the docs. Yeah, easy is a relative thing. Um, <laughs> it always is. Uh, I mean, there's so much in there that uh, it could become pretty... It's pretty difficult to, the first time you look at a macro, try and understand what is actually going on. 
Um, but the, the stuff that the guys are doing here with diesel is really interesting uh, in terms of an ORM. Uh, yeah, I was I was listening to one of the episodes today on the bike shed as well, just about how that's going. I think it might have been the same one that you're referring to. Uh, but what what I find just change of topic a bit here is that the documentation on Rust is top notch, uh, top quality documentation. Um, so Steve Klabnik has been very involved in the documentation of Rust um, and making sure that that's, that's good quality and it's easy to navigate and things. So if you go to the documentation on the Rustlang website, you'll find it's got keyboard shortcuts to uh, focus the search bar. And as you start typing, it's doing live searches against the docs. Uh, you can keyboard navigation to go around. As soon as you go into things, I find the, um, the docs themselves are very well written very clear to understand and they've got links across to the source code to the actual rust source that implements them and that's because well, they can do that because rust's documentation in terms of comments the rust language documentation you're browsing there is actually annotated rust code uh, comment uh, drawn out of the comments one of the other interesting things that comes from rust's comment system is that if you prefix your comment um your documentation comment with slash slash bang instead of just triple slash that will then take any uh, triple backtick so markdown syntax and will actually execute that as part of your test suite so your documentation is can actually be kept up to date with the code that it's testing or that that is documenting through tests oh so it will fail to generate the docs if the code's now broken now if you run cargo test so cargo is kind of if, if you're working with go it's kind of the go tool but with with rust uh, it does quite a bit more in terms of dependency management which is actually really nice uh, far closer to bundler in that sense perhaps it's better compared to something like npm actually now that i think about it uh, where it, it's your task runner it's it's used for code generation things like that uh, but if you say cargo test uh, it will go through any documentation that you've got in line in your comments but using the triple slash or the slash slash bang syntax and if it sits inside a markdown triple backtick it'll just go and execute that as a test and it'll fail your test if your documentation is no longer act or no longer compiles or no longer asserts correctly <coughs> so if you go through the docs you'll often find an assertion inside the documentation or inside the code samples that they give and that's you well, often used as an inline test for the code that it's documenting. That, that really is a nice concept. I've seen that with the, the Groovy docs and stuff overall, as will people tend. I don't know if it executes, but they tend to have assertions in the code. I, uh, I'm just... Uh, I kind of like that trend. I have to disagree and say I think it's a terrible idea. Executable comments... Oosh. Java started that like years ago, and it was a very, very bad idea. Look, it's, it's not a replacement for your tests, and what it really is is just saying here i'm going to give you an example of how to use this mm. but this example that i'm giving you i'm actually going to execute this code when i generate my docs or when i'm building my app right. so that so that you know that the code that you're reading here actually does work yeah i think for a public api for like a library that you're releasing it makes sense but i would not use that just for my own code ever in any language it makes no sense it's just an overhead yeah but if you if you're releasing if you're building your own crate and releasing that to the community at large 
I think it's a nice uh, safety net. Yeah, it's it's definitely got a use case that I think is very useful. And remember where we came from in this discussion is we're talking about the standard library documentation. Mm. Uh, so the st- we know that the code samples that we're going to look at when you're looking at the standard library documentation have actually been run and any assertions in their past before you start using this code and trying to figure out what the hell is going wrong. Very, very interesting. Very interesting. So now, now tell me, who's behind Rust? Like, should people, um, you know, maybe let's just go a bit meta for a while. Uh, who's supporting Rust? Like, if, if, if I wanted to use Rust for development in Cloud Africa, is that a wise choice? Is it production ready, you know? Or am I going to be like a year down the line and find that it's no longer supported? Like, do you know anything about that story behind Rust? The group behind it, as we started with, is Mozilla. Um, I don't think there's any uh, support for it in the same sense that you would find with, say, Google's behind Go in that way. I'm I'm not quite sure on that. But in terms of people using it, so Yehuda Katz, he's pretty well known in the JavaScript and Ruby circles. Um, his company, Skylight, is using Rust in the agent that, so if you're familiar with Skylight, they're sort of, they're in the same kind of vein as New Relic. They do performance um, monitoring of, in, in the case that he's, he was talking about is Rails apps. Um, and the agent that you install as part of the Skylight gem is written in Rust. And it just fits a case where they needed something that's not going to garbage collect and slow down the user app. And it needs to be in a low level language. So it's not going to, chew up on memory. So that, that worked pretty well for them. Um, and if you go through the, the community, guys like Steve Klabnik and Yehuda Katz are very active in promoting the language and using the language. Yeah, I think the majority, the majority of the contributions have been coming from the community. Uh, I don't know where I saw that getting mentioned. Um, so I think Mozilla's becoming more of what's the word I'm looking for, like a stalwart of the project, mm-hmm. just offering guidance and money but i don't know if other big commercial sponsors behind the project yeah and i was trying to have a just quick search around to see if i can get some some big company names that use it yeah it's not so much that there's 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 a big company supporting it i mean i know people associate go with google but go i think has escaped google and it's it's used in you know soundcloud and cloudflare and mm-hmm. other, you know there's just even if google went away there's a large bunch of people already using Go in production today, which makes me feel like, okay, you know, there, there'd probably be like five people out there who would be able to support Go and continue its its kind of development. Like, I'm very happy that Google spends money and supports Go. Um, you know, I, from, from what I know of Rust in the early days, it had a bit of a shaky start to life. Like, the versions were all over the place, and I think it, it's come together a lot probably in the last year if i remember correctly um but yeah it's just interesting to know who's uh who's out there using it what sort of community there is around it is it being used in other words yeah so i mean i mentioned skylight uh i'm not sure about commercial uses of it yeah uh it's been spoken about quite a lot on that bike shed podcast so i mean there are definitely people using it um in production in production software uh, one of the uh, things that part of the kind of origin story of Rust, I guess, is that Firefox was more, well, they were looking at some of the 
the bug reports in Firefox. Um, and they had some several, I'm not sure the exact number, it was four or five uh, vulnerabilities in Firefox that were remote code execution or related to the trying to access things that had been freed or, you know, uh, reading memory that you don't, that, that that's no longer allocated and things like that. And I, I think there's a large contingent of developers who don't trust themselves enough to go and write safe C++, uh, but still want to be able to get to the that low-level control and performance. And a language like Rust really is very appealing to that crowd, of which I am one of them. Um, I mean, I definitely, I've written some C++, but I wouldn't trust myself to go and write memory safe code that's not going to sigfault in C++. Um, and a language like Rust that gives me these guarantees and, you know, it has compiled time semantics that'll prevent me from being stupid is really appealing. Yeah, no, sure. But at the, at, at the same time, you're comparing, you know, the C++ community, which is, sure, it's, it's complex and everything, but the compiler is solid, the tools are solid, there's a huge community supporting C++. I'm just, you know... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, and, and and scale of community, I, I don't think Rust is anywhere near C++, uh, it, it definitely isn't anywhere near the scale of C++, and I don't think it's seen the adoption that, that Go has picked up, possibly because it's got a, a sharper learning curve. But at the same time, I'm finding it to be a very stable language. It's running at version 1.5 now. Uh, 1.0 came out last year. It's it's stable for production. Yeah, they've been very strict adopters of the whole Simba uh, thing. <clears throat> I feel like the moment they hit 1.0, the ver version started incrementing very, very quickly. And apparently they've set down some nice guidelines in a RFC equivalent for us for library authors as well to get them to become like to really embrace Simba in a good solid way. So that might lead to some good things down the line as well. Yeah, and one thing that Rust has definitely got right from my perspective is the package management and dependency management story. So we mentioned Cargo earlier and Kenneth, you mentioned crates. So yes. crates are kind of your unit of distribution of code. Um, a lot, some of the standard library type or things that may be included in the standard library in future uh, started off as crates. Uh, so things like time you bring in through through a crate at the moment, uh, but it, it behaves a lot like bundler or npm depending on your background uh, in order to lock down your dependencies and things like that. And does it have the same kind of mechanics as bundler, like the nice lock files? Yeah, and I just also because that's easy to. Yeah, so it uses, uh, I'm not sure what the motivation was, but it uses Tom's markup language or uh, TomL. Um, that it was a, it's a language for configuration that was put together by Tom Preston Warner, GitHub fame. Um, and it actually looks a lot like a straight up.ini file if you're used to that on Windows, square brackets in headers and then keys and values, but it also allows for declarations of arrays and nested arrays and those kinds of things. So it, it's useful at that level. Um, but then you would declare your packages, your dependencies, and um, that, that would include any crates that you want to bring in. And when you cargo build, it goes and fetches any dependencies that you have and then creates a lock file that will lock down to those dependencies. And what's really nice about the way that they've done their 
uh, indexing of packages, or sorry, of crates, sorry, of still, still living in Go space. Uh, the indexing of crates is the index actually lives on GitHub and updating that index locally is just doing a git pull. That is nice and simple. So, so that at le that level, I mean, Yehuda's um, knowledge and experience of building Bundler and I think all the lessons that have come from NPM have, have played into this uh, cargo tool there for Rust. So maybe from my side, this is like kind of closing loops. So we have this language and tool chain and this compiler and all these semantics that gives us all these great guarantees and promises, green fields, rainbows, unicorns, um, <laughs> as long as we can get it to compile. And people seem to be building like, okay, and we've got package management that allows us to like quickly share our own code with the world at large and get code in. But uh, what's the kind of playground? Now, if, I've, if I'm curious to start playing with Rust and I want to do more than print Hello World, what, where's the space you've kind of noticed looking around, searching for tutorials and stuff, what the people are doing with it? Do they do web backends with it? Are they doing embedded systems with it? Are they doing graphics programming? Where's, where, where are folks playing with this? Yeah, uh, it's fairly broad from what I've seen. The, there are some people playing with, we mentioned the diesel ORM earlier. So you've got connectors to, um, database servers. And from there, you've got, you can, you got guys who are hooking that up to the web. Um, it, it looks like a lot of guys are using this as an alternative to see when building native extensions to Ruby. Uh, Yehuda has been using, using Rust in that way with Skylight, for example, uh, that you've got C-like performance, but running inside a language that prevents seg faults and is reliable in that way. Uh, I've, I've been looking around some of the embedded stuff. They've uh, there's a, an operating system. Uh, I think it's called Redox OS. That's written in pure Rust. Uh, right now, I'm not sure if it's just a proof of concept or if it's something that they're really planning on building up. It looks like it's got a full GUI that's built on it already. Uh, so that that's going somewhere. And Rust does play well in that space. Of it should be a language that you can build an operating system in, or you can build a database server. Uh, it gives you that kind of low-level performance. Uh, so operating systems is one area. Graphics programming is another. There's a wrapper for OpenGL. That, that's quite nice in Rust. I'm trying to remember its name now. I know we just mentioned it before the show. Well, there certainly seems to be a lot going on in the newsletters and uh, in the community just looking around while you've been talking. Um, seems, seems very, very active. They seem to be making a lot of uh, changes. Rust Snart version 1.5, whole lot of new features. Very interesting. A lot of effort going into Rust, that's for sure. Yeah, and it seems like it's being handled in a very mature way from the project coordination side. So Mozilla is doing a great job of getting the right people to coordinate things. Uh, the documentation, as I mentioned, is top-notch, which is important. But then also things like Introducing new features through RFCs. If, if you, if you want to comment on new features that are being added into Rust, there's a full RFC process that runs through. Um, uh, also, if also fe features being brought in. So you've got the nightly build and perhaps this is another uh, place that I've 
like the way that they've taken things in a similar vein to what Google has done is thresholds of instability. So just like Google has Chrome that has the canary build or the stable build. Right. Um, first you've got the, the nightly or the stable nightly gets a whole lot of extra features that, you, you know, you've got, you've got an unstable build that's available. Uh, it gets the, that gets all the new features. So one of the things they're working on at the moment is syntax extensions. I'm not quite sure what's going on in that, but it looks like it's a, it'll be a way of, um, you through rust functions, codifying your own, your own syntaxes in rust. Uh, and, and that's currently going through some iteration. Um, uh, but then there are, those are features that are hidden behind feature flags at compile time. So even if they, they may be compiling the exact same code that that can be built as stable or built as unstable, depending on which features they want to include. If that makes sense. Sure. Feels like I uh, feels like I butchered that a bit. No, that definitely makes sense. I think it's just uh, we were a bit blown away with the amount of work and the complexity that's going on in Rust. Um, but that definitely makes sense. Yeah, I just find it's got such a nice kind of balance between you know it's low level C like performance, but you can still write a code as expressive as two dot days dot go. Um, and and get a time object that's two days ago. It, it kind of that that was one of the things that I really liked about Ruby was just the expressiveness of it, and you can get fairly close to that in Rust. One of the complaints about Rust at the moment is the um, kind of static type overhead that you need to be able to build the abstractions to be able to write that kind of code in the end. But as a consumer of those abstractions, once that's written. It can be really nice to work with. Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. So, um, I was just having a look around the net as well. There's a website called Are We Web Yet? <laughs> I think it is, which just lists um, uh, features that Rust needs to get in order to be able to write a web server in Rust. I don't know if that's current at all, or is is that still a problem? Is it still a are they still waiting for the the HTTP libraries, or, or is that web? I haven't followed that, but uh, you are definitely able to serve HTTP straight out of Rust. Right. Okay. Yeah, they're saying it's it's really functional, but just under active development. Right. HTTP servers and yeah, the database drivers are prone to change. It seems like there's a lot of change going on, even though we're at like 1.5. Yeah, but the the change that we're describing there isn't in the core library or the core language itself. So because it's semantically versioned, you have a guarantee of backwards compatibility of um, of code and version. Okay, cool. You know, they're not going to break things. Yeah. But what, what we're looking at here, like an HTTP server that's now extra dependencies and extra libraries that still have to be built. And But Rust itself is stable. So there's a lot of opportunities here to contribute to a community if that's something somebody's looking for. Yeah, if you want to get in ahead of the curve and start implementing things, you've got an opportunity here to sort of drive a direction in a in a language that I think is going to see some fairly widespread adoption over the next while. Okay, and um, yeah, maybe we can start closing up by telling people where they can go to to get started with Rust. How would how did you get started? 
Well, so there are, okay, the, the easiest place, if you go to rustlang.org, uh, you go to the official documentation, there's a book, They've uh, it's published through gitbook.io, it's a free book that you can just read on the web and it leads you through Rust. Along with that, there's Rust by Example, it's another book that... So is it just for the listeners, that's rust-lang.org? That seems to be the main jumping off point, and then there's, yeah. a, there's a lot of links to the other sites there. Yeah, and on that Rust Lang website, you'll see there are links to Stable and the Nightly or the, the next versions. Uh, just stick to the Stable docs and you'll be good. <laughs> okay, and then uh, installing it, does it uh, install on Windows, Linux, Mac OS X? All the usual candidates are good to go. Installs on OS X and Linux. I haven't checked Windows, but I believe it is supported. It must be on the yeah. Git's website, some of the most popular uh, yeah, downloaded okay. things. It has got Win API in the name and Sys32, yes. and so definitely works on Windows. Yeah. I, I just hadn't checked that, but yes, so it is, it's supported on Windows, Linux, OS X. Okay, that's, that's great. Um, and then... You know, just what going through the learn Rust and effective Rust kind of uh, uh, articles on 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 the rustlang.org site is a good place to start for people. Uh, I think the first place to start is the book. So that the very first link on the Rustlang website just leads you to the Rust programming language book, and that ex- explains pretty much everything you need from installing Hello World. Uh, it gives you a few examples of building programs in Rust, including some examples of concurrency and how it handles um, memory management across threads, uh, atomic reference counts and things like that with smart pointers. Uh, It gets into all all of the syntax and semantics, everything that you're really interested in, you should be able to find in the Rust book. And leading on from that is the Rust by example, which it's far more... um, centered around code examples, but does uh, it gives you a fairly good introduction to what Rust syntax looks like. Oh, so this is very interesting. I see there are uh, installers for Android and iOS. Is that correct? Yeah, so it can compile ARM, ARM64, ARM32. So you can, you can compile down binaries and libraries for those platforms you, as well. I believe that also means because it supports ARM64 that you should be able to compile down for iOS, but I haven't tried that. Right, right. Oh, that's super interesting. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you so much for taking us through all of that. Kenneth, do you have any questions before we sign off for the evening? Uh, no, I don't. <clears throat> it was fascinating. Thanks, Kevin. Like, I know it's just like a, a window into the world. I guess uh, we could put it out there. If one of the listeners knows somebody... Yeah, locally, that's very involved with Rust or uses it a lot or has like, deployed something to production. Like, let them reach out to us and we can have a, a follow-up show in a few weeks and see where Kevin's adventures have taken him and chat to somebody else to get a different perspective. I think that's closing. Yeah, you, you always want to hear from people who have bad things to say about the language, right? <laughs> of, you know, after they've used it, like, you know, we were trying to take this thing to production and it, you know, it ruined my life. Well, hopefully that's not the story with Rust. I doubt it very much. But yeah, if anybody's out there who's used Rust to to do anything, even a small thing, do do drop us a line, and we'd love to chat to you. Cool. Um, all right. Any any other comments, guys? No. Do we have? Do you guys have picks? No. 
Yeah, I think that's it for me. <laughs> no, no picks, man. I don't have any picks. The heat, the heat, it's fried my brain. I, I, no, I think I can give one pick. Motherland coffee. Ah. Like, just go there sometime, get some coffee beans, drink some cappuccinos. And if you're, if really you're at stuff. the Motherland in Rosebank, just ping me on Slack and I'll come and have a coffee with you. Anytime. We'll take you up on that. For offer. sure, man. <laughs> cool. So, tomorrow lunchtime? Definitely. Hey, anytime. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on Slack. You cool. know me. Cool. Kenneth, anything last from your side? Any picks or anything? Uh, yeah, there's this place, uh, City Rock in Fontainebleau. I believe there's one in Cape Town as well. Uh, it's an indoor climbing gym. We uh, went to explore it on the weekend. It was they had like an open weekend, so it just had some fun bouldering and climbing walls and had a yoga session there. It was absolutely fantastic. Of course, I'm in agony today. <laughs> I over, overstretched myself way too far. But that's a lot of fun if somebody's looking for a different kind of activity. Where, where is this? Uh, where is this? In Fontainebleau in Randburg, uh, like very close to the corner of Republic and uh, Robbie uh, Streets. But the website is cityrock.co.za. One oh, very, very and cool. they have everything in there. And like I said, they've got a Cape Town facility as well that's been there apparently for many years. And the Joburg one opened late last year. Oh, cool. Definitely going to go check that out. City Rock. City Rock. Yeah, it's a, it's a hell of a lot of fun. Thanks. And are, are you taking up climbing? Um, I don't know. It's just something I'll, like, most definitely do, like, often. But I don't think enough to actually take it up as, yeah, a, yeah. as like, a full-time sport. Yeah, no, no, not be competitive at it, right? No, but it was definitely a lot of fun. I think it's just something that, like, over time, like, you're going to take a very long time to, like, uh, what did I say, like, reach, reach your peak. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, this like once a month or once every two months is be a lot of fun to just keep doing and see how you get better at it. Awesome, awesome. Kevin, anything from your side? I uh, already mentioned Motherland. All right, oh, yes. <laughs> I need so more of that. That's too. where we're having lunch tomorrow. What? <laughs> Nobody told me about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's on you, by the oh, way. Oh, it is? Jeez, <laughs> all right. Wait, what time is that? 12 o'clock, right? Well, thank goodness, thank goodness the podcast will only come out after that lunch. I don't know, I can get it out quickly. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> guys, thank you so much, and we'll uh, chat to you guys next week. Cool. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Cheers, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.